Just before we start, we'd like to give a content warning as this episode does contain discussions around gender-based violence. Hey awesome people, huge welcome back to the 12th episode of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Caitlin Figueredo, founder and CEO of Jasiri, an organization promoting gender equity for empowerment-based self-defense and leadership programs for women. During our conversation, I was honestly blown away by all the amazing things Caitlin has done. From meeting Michelle Obama to being part of UN work groups, there's absolutely heaps to learn from Caitlin's journey. So I hope you enjoy what she had to say. Hi everyone, my name is Caitlin Figueredo. I am the founder and CEO of Jaziri Australia. So we are a youth-led organization on a mission to unleash a fearless generation of women and girls. And I'm really passionate about achieving gender equality and ending leadership inequality. When did that sort of passion first come to you? Like, was it a, I guess, a series of moments or did you have like a certain thing that's like, yep, this is what I want to do with my life? I guess it was a series of moments, mainly because like my dad, he is a migrant, he was a political migrant, he was forced to flee his country when he was a little kid and my family luckily chose Australia and they taught me from a young age, you know, that the most important thing that you can do in your life is to be of service and that's something that I've sort of, you know, been really passionate about my entire life, always giving back to the community, but more so gender equality and ending gender-based violence is due to my own personal experience as a survivor of gender-based violence. I was a little kid at the time and was about two years old when the violence first started all the way up to 12 years old and the entire time I kept it a secret my personality started changing and it had a huge impact on my life and I guess I, by the time I was a teenager, you know, I was like an average teen, didn't really know what to do with my life and I finally found World Vision when I was about 19 years old. I had absolutely no experience and I just went to them and said, look, I'm really passionate about helping people. I want to serve. I want to help. Can you support me in that? And they're like, look, we're going to take a chance on you because you're passionate and we're going to give you an opportunity to found our youth organization in the ACT. So it was that which led me into the NGO sphere. But what really I think was my catalyst moment of working at actually gender equality is what I want to focus on is when I went with World Vision to Cambodia and we were in this in this like World Vision tour sort of team. And I remember on the first day, they took us into this, it's, it's, a rub, it's literally a rubbish dump, but people live, live there. So it's like a village built in rubbish. And it was, I was so overwhelmed seeing it. I've I obviously heard about similar experiences from my dad because my, my bedtime stories were his life stories. And all of a sudden I had this like real weird moment where I saw all of the other team members who I was with, they're all young people, but they were like taking photos of other people of their houses. And I'm like, you know, this is not okay. Like, what are you doing? Be respectful. And I just took that moment and I, I remember seeing this, these two women with these two little babies and I just saw them and I wanted to engage. And I started like trying to like make them smile. I started you know, playing all the baby games because I'm just like, these kids are adorable. But then I looked up and I saw that one of the mothers was severely beaten and bruised. She had 
She had fresh blood tripling down her arm. She had a bruised face. And I'm like, I was just like, holy crap, this this is worse than what I went through as a kid. This It was my moment of, you know, you, you hear the statistics, mm-hmm. but it's when you see it. And I realized that this is a problem happening all around the world. And there is infinite amount of problems that we need to solve within our lifetime. But we can't do it all. I was only human. And I realized that that little girl, I might not know what happens to her. She might not be able to to grow up or even live to the next couple of years because what I found out for the tour advisor who worked in this community, he built a school for these kids. He was like, this is one of the most dangerous places in Cambodia. The rates of domestic violence are through the roof. We have drug trafficking and almost one person every couple of days is murdered in this community. And that kind of hit me and I went, okay, I'm, I know I'm just a young person, but there's got to be something I, I can do. And luckily, you know, that something was working with World Vision at the time, but it really solidified the fact that gender inequality is an issue around the globe. And it's something that I experienced and it's something that I want to fix. And given that it's, as you said, such a massive issue, how did you sort of almost not just say the issue is too big for me and just sort of give up, right? Because I feel like a lot of people can go through that and just say it's way too big for me. What could I possibly do? There's just mm. one person. Yeah, honestly, I think that almost every single day. You know, I've been really very, very fortunate in my life. I'm only 23, but I've been able to work, you know, both locally on the grassroots with survivors of violence all the way up to working with the United Nations, creating policies that affect millions of young women and girls to try and tackle this issue. So I'm very fortunate, I'm very privileged, I recognize that every day. But I think the thing that helps me not be overwhelmed is that I've lived through that violence, even though it's not as bad, and I guess it's, I don't want to be like a whole privilege sort of abuse sort of scale that one person's worse than another, therefore your experience is not validated. But for me, it's, I almost died when I was a kid a number of times, but through help and support, I live, I got through that. And sure, it was tough and sure, still to this day, I'm still living with PTSD, but I went from one moment which is you know, something no one ever wants to go through, to suddenly being able to affect change, to suddenly being on the outskirts looking in going, actually, the right people doing the right things, even if it's the smallest amount, can make a huge difference to someone's life. And I think that's what makes me passionate, I guess hopeful, about achieving gender equality, is the fact that there are people out there who are trying to be leaders for the right reasons. And even if it's as small as, yeah, I'll give you an example. I have an amazing friend who is this incredible activist, works across the globe, and she was telling me the story of someone who she was working with. And she said that she met these survivors, this young woman who had been in an abusive relationship, and she was trying to work out how can she get help because she was saying that the the husband was both physically, sexually and emotionally abusive. She was always stuck in the house. She couldn't go out. And then on top of that, she had her mother-in-law who was also abusive. And every couple of minutes she'd ask for tea and she'd click and she'd go, tea, girl, bring me tea. And she'd consistently do that, but she wouldn't drink the tea. 
She'd let the tea pile up and, and the survivor would keep going back and forth, bringing her hot tea. And until the husband would come in after the end of the day and the mother-in-law would say, son, look at this tea. She brings me cold tea. And that's, that's when the, the husband would suddenly start abusing her again. So my friend, I was like, you know, what did you do to help her? And she's like, well, I told her to breathe. And I'm like, breathe, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? You tell her to breathe. Like, you didn't tell her where to shove that tea? Like, what, what, what's going on here? And she's like, well, wait a minute. You know, let me, let me finish. So she started working with the survivor. The survivor would come to her and she was like, and the survivor said, I have to do, get the tea instantly. So my friend was like, okay, let's, let's work with you for a couple of weeks and let's try to slow down the process, give you time to think and time to breathe. So let's start with one breath. So the next time the mother asks for tea, sit down, take a breath and then get up and go make the tea. And then we'll start increasing it to two breaths and so on and so forth. So within a week of this process of breathing, the survivor went back to my friend and my friend asked, you know, what, what happened? How are you feeling? What's going on? Has there been any changes? And the survivor was like, I stopped making tea. And then my friend's like, wait, hang on. No, no, no. What, what are you talking about? You stopped making tea. That's like far down the process. And she's like, well, the first day I was, I was scared, but I took a breath. And then I went and made the tea. Second day, I took two breaths, then three, then four. And then suddenly, when the mother kept asking me for tea, I just sat down and breathed. And I was just like, huh, you know, something as simple as breathing mm. can make a difference. Because at that point in time, the survivor, she had no autonomy. Mm. She instantly went up and did it. She had no choice in the matter. But giving her the ability to think and be mindful and be in that process gives her back some of her power. So I guess going back to your question of you know, becoming overwhelmed with this issue, yeah, it is overwhelming. It is heartbreaking to hear. Like just today I heard they were on the hunt to find another killer of a woman who recently passed away. And to hear that every single week, even less so, women are dying in this country and even more so overseas, that is heartbreaking. It is awful and it makes me bloody pissed off that we don't have the right leaders to be able to tackle this issue. But what gives me hope is that there are leaders, they're up and coming, and they're going to get into positions of power. They're already doing it on the grassroots, mm -hmm. but soon, very soon, they're going to get in positions of power where they can make a monumental difference. And I am just waiting for that sunrise to come. I guess just a slight change of pace. I remember reading online that you literally met Michelle Obama. So you can tell us a yeah. bit more about that. I feel like I had to build that. You probably <laughs> talked about it every single time. But it sounds so cool. So yeah, can you just tell us a bit more how that happened and what led yeah. to it? And oh. what the experience was like as well. So that was a couple of years ago now. But honestly, it was the probably the best moment of my life. I am the biggest fan of Michelle Obama. I absolutely love her. I recently downloaded her audiobook and I'm like, oh my God, it's like I'm right there again. <laughs> so it's so good. Like 19 hours with Michelle Obama. But no, I think for me it was, I think it was about one year into my leadership journey. So I had been with World Vision. I had just finished my one year at VGen. 
I'd just come back from Cambodia. I then started building schools for peace, which I think might have helped me get onto their radar. And I also started working with the UN. So I think it was like a combination of different things. But it was, I remember this so clearly, it was the night of my final exam of law, of my first year of law school. I was freaking out, it was about 2 a.m. in the morning and suddenly I get this email. Check my emails and it's like White House invitation to meet Michelle Obama. And I'm looking at this thing, it's 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm like delirious. I'm like, I don't have time for this. I've got my law exam tomorrow. Like what's going on? <laughs> and so I open it and there was the official seal. Keep reading and they're like, you have been named a White House global change maker for gender equality. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And then it, it keeps going on and it's like, we want you to be in Washington, D.C. next week to meet Michelle Obama and you're invited to the United States of Women's Summit where Oprah, where the president is going to be speaking. I am now completely freaking out. I am losing my mind. I am screaming at the top of my head. I pick up my laptop. I run to my parents and I'm like, mom and dad, is this real? At 2 a.m. in the morning, they're not too happy with me. So <laughs> I wasn't their favorite child until they saw that it was real. And then literally I did my exam. I passed, thank goodness. And the next week I was flying to Washington, D.C. And I remember the morning that I met her. It was the day before the United um, Women's Summit. And it was about 5 a.m. in the morning because we had a very early meeting to go see her. So it was me and it was a couple of other young women who were also supported. And it was about 5 a.m. We had to go around the back and then go through security. So they took our phones and I'm like, no selfie? Like, what? Like, you've got to get that selfie with Michelle Obama. Yeah, course, right? <laughs> so I was like, no, nope, no selfies. And I found out that's actually, you know, pretty common. So when I went to Buckingham Palace, they also took our phones. I'm like, no selfie with the Queen. God damn it. <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> um, and yeah, they took us through the White House and we were in this room. There was two double doors. There was a security guard standing, you know, we were all sort of lined up against the back wall and suddenly the doors opened and there was an announcement. Please prepare, you're about to meet the First Lady of the United States of America. I internally, I was losing my mind. I could not believe what was happening and suddenly she walked in and, and she was. There was Michelle Obama and I'm going, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Next minute, I think I must have been freaking out so much that I was about to pass out. I feel like that was what was happening because suddenly she was right in front of me. She grabbed my shoulders, pulled me in for a hug, and she's like, Hi, Caitlin, it's so nice to meet you. And I'm like, Michelle, why did she know my name, right? <laughs> I'm like, What is happening? I'm like, I'm this 20 year old kid. Michelle Obama knows my name and suddenly like my whole world stopped and for that you know we didn't get long we spent about 20 minutes with her but like 20 minutes of talking about gender equality talking about our passions talking about you know, education rights for women and I'm like this, this is so surreal and it's a moment that you know I will take for the rest of my life because she in that moment made everyone feel like you were her friend she cared so much about you and what you're going to do and it was just like wow okay it's real she she's real she believes in me so I'm 
you know, corny as it is, I wanted to make her proud. And I guess it, I stepped up a notch since after meeting her. I guess taking a step back again, probably planned this wrong, but um, <laughs> I guess how did you even get involved with the UN in the first place? Because uh, I feel like I have a lot of friends who would kill for an opportunity like that. Yeah. So I guess what sort of steps did you take to get yourself involved? Honestly, every single step they tell you at the at, you know, to get into the UN. So, for example, for me, I was always told, you know, go to university, get your degree, learn a second language, get all this experience behind your belt. Then maybe if you're lucky, when you're in your 30s, you might get into the UN. So that's the whole thing that I thought. So, yeah, I went to law school, first year of law school, and I'm like, cool, you know, give me 10 years. I might be there. So in 2015, it was the launch of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. My state, VGen, um, ACT, we decided that we wanted to do the biggest launch in the country. You know, this is all on youth power. We got, you know, um, this incredible panel of like Gillian Triggs and like pretty some amazing people. And we had all these ambassadors show up and the launch was pretty incredible. And then one of these ambassadors came up to me, I think it was Ireland or UK, and they came up to me and they were like, have you heard of this thing called the Youth Assembly? And I'm like, no, what is it? And he's like, well, it is a um, event that happens twice a year at the United Nations in New York, and they invite people to be speakers. I want to put your name forward. And I'm like, cool, okay, you know what? I want to go to the UN, New York, never been, awesome. And so they put my name forward and next minute I get this invitation to come to the United Nations and do a presentation on my work at World Vision. And at the time, I just started trying to build the school of peace in Pakistan. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And it was just the right moment. I guess it's, I don't like to say luck because that means people are unlucky if they don't get achieve their dreams. I just think it was coincident that at the right moment, I was talking about all my work that I'd been doing in the last year. I talked about my, my future plans and my passions and the way that I view structural inequality. And it just so happened that one of the most senior people in UN Women was walking by and I must have caught his attention because he came in the room and he sat there and he stayed for my entire speech. And then afterwards he came up to me and was like, hi, I am so-and-so. I would like you to consider joining the United Nations Task Force for Gender Equality and Youth Development. <laughs> and I'm like to him, excuse me, um, I, I think you have the wrong person because, <laughs> because I, I haven't finished my degree, I, I don't have all the qualifications that you're looking for. And he's like, but you have a lot of passion, you're willing to learn, I see that you have that hunger. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he's like, look, he gave me his business card, he's like, get in touch and I'm gonna put you in touch with the right people and we want you to join the task force. And so suddenly, two weeks later, I'm back in Australia and I'm joining 2am phone calls with UN Women. And it just started from there. Suddenly I was you know, on one task force, next minute I'm on three task forces. Then I am leading global programs with these incredible young people and civil society and UN representatives around the world. We developed a number of different policies that led to the first ever recognition of trans young people and LGBT rights within the Commission of the Status of Women for Young People. We developed those conferences and now that's turned into a massive platform for young people around the globe. And it 
it literally just started off as you know, me being invited to go to this event and be able to speak about it. So unfortunately, that might not help all of your listeners. And I'm so sorry about that. But I guess like if they wanted to get into the UN system, my biggest advice would be two things. One, reach out to people who already work with the UN, try to develop you know, a rapport with them. Unfortunately, the UN system is has ma- massive nepotism. Mm. So they will always try and get people who they trust, who they know. So try and develop those relationships. And the second thing is, you know, try and get over there. You know, Australia, we're not, we're not as lucky because we have, you know, UN women, but that's more of a, a fundraising sort of branch. Mm. Or if you are from another country that has an official UN presence, try and get in that door because it's doing local and it's building up your experience and having that knowledge and expertise behind you. That's what's going to help you progress through the UN system and actually get in the door. I'm curious to know a lot more about your organisation, Jasiri, and like how that works and yeah. what led to it all. So, yeah, if you can give us a bit of a spiel. Yeah, so um, Jasiri is a youth-led organisation, as I said before, on a mission to create a fearless generation of women and girls. And it... It's honestly been a 10-year sort of build-up for me. So as I said, when I was from 2 years old to 12 years old, I was surviving gender-based violence. And when I was 12, the, 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 one of the most critical things that helped me stop the violence was my parents had taught me self-defense for the last for the year prior to that moment of when I was 12 years old on Christmas Eve I, I remember one of the most scariest moments of my life my abuser broke into my room my parents no one was home except for me and this person because I still had that level of trust with my parents my parents didn't know so it's not their fault but I broke into my room they got my hockey stick they tried to literally hit me straight in the head with it and I was like holy crap fight or flight suddenly took over my self-defense skills I had I was able to stop them from hitting me I was able to essentially pin them against the wall and tell them and create that space and tell them that if you ever come near me again I'm going to make sure that you won't be able to get me and I essentially pushed them and I ran and I locked myself in my parents' room until my parents came and I told them essentially what had happened. And it was that that ability of self-defense that gave me back confidence and it gave me back control over my life and over the situation. And I understand that just the art of learning self-defense will not stop every attack. It won't heal or support everyone. But for me, that's what helped. That's what made sure that never again would that person ever come near me, ever hurt me. Essentially, it, it was that thought of you know, using sport, using self-defense as a healing mechanism. And I, I sort of forgot about it for a number of different years. I then beca- um, went on to become a, a semi-elite athlete. So I played basketball around Australia and in New Zealand. That idea of sport as a way of bringing people together to be able to express what you're feeling. Because at the time, you know, I was going through severe mental illness. So sport was the thing that kept me going. And I, I started realizing, you know, being a gender equality advocate, that the statistics that the cause of violence is not changing, violence is not decreasing, rather it is increasing. Structural you know, and cultural change that we desperately need, you know, changing you know, men's behaviours and how they act towards women, that's going to take decades. But 
for me, the thing that I kept thinking about was what's happening right now to survivors who are in their homes, afraid to go to sleep. What can they do if their if their money, if their voices, if they're if they're physically being restrained or everything about them is being stolen from them by perpetrators? And it kept coming back to you know when I was twelve years old, I used self-defense. I found my voice. Maybe potentially. I could use what I gained through basketball or sport and turn that into an organization. But I, I hadn't honestly done any martial arts or self-defense since I was a little kid. I didn't know where to start. And, and I guess it was the universe sort of conspiring because it was in November 2017. I got this email um, from UN Women. So, and they were like, Caitlin, we want to create an event during 16 days of activism, where we get 16 countries together to do a martial arts self-defense class for women. So it's just going to be like a once-off sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, you know, once-off, that's okay. I can like, I can try to organize things. I'm pretty good at that. And then, so, so we did it. It was a huge success. And suddenly I'm like, hang on. If this was a success and we were literally flooded with women going, you're offering this can we please be a part of it and then i went you know what there's actually a need for it we know there's a need and i was like you know what when i was a little girl my avazina who's my my dad's mother used to say to me at the kitchen table baba i always want you to remember that you're jaziri and jaziri in my family's local language swahili means fearless and brave So she kept saying, Bubba, you're fearless. Bubba, you're brave. And I'm like, and it just hit me one day when I was thinking about this self-defense class. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to need a name. And suddenly I just heard my Vazina's voice, Jaziri. That's what I'm going to call it. It's respecting my heritage, but also building a movement of fearlessness in Australia. And, And basically for us, Jaziri exists for those who cannot wait. It exists for women and survivors of, of all types, of giving them the skills and support that they need to make it through the nights. And a lot of people can criticize me for that, but unless you're those survivors who we work with in the class, I honestly tell people to shut up because they're not there, they're not living it. You can talk about the data, you can talk about how you know we need to work on with men and boys, and yes, completely, 100%, but there are other organizations doing that. Look at our watch, I send them their way. But for Jaziri, we exist for those who can't wait. And we are very unique, I think, because we look at the problem holistically. Through our empowerment-based self-defense, which is different from other self-defense classes, we focus on providing women with the skills of not only just like physical skills, but also like emotional, psychological support. And we also help them with developing a leadership opportunities. And then, so that's the whole grassroots sort of giving women what they need when they need it. Then we look for more long-term. So essentially what we do is we start collecting their stories and we collect their stories to convert that into data. And so we, we have not only supporting women, but now we have data and we can use that data to help organizations such as universities, governments, you know, workplaces to reform their current systems through the use of women's voices. And that in itself is pretty powerful. And how we're changing, you know, the future 
giving that cultural change is through leadership. So we run a program called Girls Take Over Parliament, which is getting young women's voices into politics, giving them an opportunity to create policies, motions, legislations that will affect their lives. And essentially, that is creating a, a long-term movement of not only changing future politicians, but also changing policies right now that will make women's lives better and also make communities safer. So Jaziri is, you know, we exist for those who can't wait, but we also are trying to change the culture of leadership. We're, we're trying to change you know, leadership inequality by bringing more culturally and linguistically diverse leaders into the mix and not just women. And we're going for that long-term change through women's voices because I personally believe women know what we need to make a difference, but their voices are not heard at the top level. So we're trying to cut through all that and bring it straight to the top. And I think you read my mind a little bit because I think you touched on a, a point that I wanted to raise in terms of criticism that um, the organisation might face. Because mm. I, I suppose even when I was reading it at face value, there's almost that risk that the organisation is putting the... Um, the onus on women. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I'm sure that's something you've heard quite a fair yes. bit. So I'm just, I just want to touch on that point a little bit because mm. I know you pretty much debunked a lot of that criticism. I'm curious, where is this criticism sort of coming from? Because you mentioned it's definitely not the people who are going through the program. Mm. Is it mainly men? Is it mainly women? Like, I'm, I'm just curious to understand that a bit more. Yeah, it's, it's honestly from everywhere. I think you know, this criticism around self-defence has been there for decades. Self-defence as itself was used by women during the 60s and 70s, so the second wave feminism. And it was used as a tool because women, and this is mainly university students, saw that they were getting attacked. It's the same issues that we're facing right now at um, substantial rates, and they wanted to defend themselves. And I guess that whole idea of self-defense and equipping yourself with the skills, that is, for some people, victim blaming. Because it's the idea of, well, victims have to defend themselves against perpetrators. It's their responsibility to not get assaulted. It's their responsibility not to get raped. And if you learn self-defense and you still are attacked or assaulted or harassed, well, that means it doesn't work. That's sort of the outsider perspective. And look, I get it. If you, if you learn empowerment-based self-defense, it's not going to stop you 100% from getting attacked or hurt in the future. But we have seen a dramatic decrease of the likelihood. You know, there is data by Hollander who has been researching empowerment-based self-defense for the last 30 years. And she has found, looking around the world researching this, that there is a likelihood of 93% decrease of your chance of becoming sexually assaulted and having rape completion, again, if you have that intervention and that knowledge of empowerment-based self-defense. It's just a very simple barrier. We get criticized from people who don't understand. And yes, a lot of it, most of it is from men. Really quick example. We are doing our first course at the Australian National University, which had the second highest rates of sexual assault and harassment in the country from the data that came out about two years ago. And we wanted to give away 10 free spots to survivors of violence who self-identified. So they come to us, we don't go to them. And we also wanted to give away spots to students who wanted to participate but couldn't. We tried to get support of a couple of the ANU's like youth sort of bodies, but they were like, nah, 
we don't we don't want to be a part of it because it's victim blaming and it was going hang on it's a free service that we have found is actually helping women we're having survivors coming to us saying that this is giving them the confidence to simply exist Mm -hmm. the confidence to simply exist yet you don't want to give that opportunity to a survivor who's potentially struggling under your watch and so for us yes empower and based self-defense self-defense itself is not a one-stop solution we have never said that Mm -hmm. you need a multitude of approaches to fix a societal problem that is not going away anytime soon. But for us, it's honestly not about the critiques. It's about the survivors and those who want it. We are there to help those who want it. And we don't honestly give a damn about Mm -hmm. any sort of backlash we get because it's not about them. It's about those who we're trying to help. And I'm also curious to know a little bit more about the sort of leadership program. So we have two leadership programs. So the first is the Trailblazer Fellowship. So that is specifically designed for Indigenous and culturally and linguistically diverse young women. Because we know there is a massive leadership gap, not only between men and women, but if you look at the amount of culturally and linguistically diverse people in leadership, it drops dramatically mm-hmm. so we're trying to change that and we essentially give the three-month fellowship we give them tools support mentorship and specific training to help them achieve their own goals and that's just a service that you know we started up last year we had 11 fellows graduate our programs we've got two that have gone on to be part of the new colombo plan we have another one who decided they wanted to apply to a university they never would have thought they would have had the courage to go into because of our program and we've had a huge success from it and uh, the second one is girls take over parliament so that as i mentioned before is a program where we bring young women into politics we give them specified training because there is no program in the southern hemisphere that helps women from all political backgrounds to get into politics because we realize there is a massive leadership gap and confidence gap so there is only one percent of the population that well female population at the age of 15 who want to run for office that drops to zero percent when they're in their 20s and we we've seen that through our data as well but what we've also seen is that after graduating through our program 95 percent of them come out saying that they want to run for office one day we have a hundred percent of them who say that they feel more connected to our democracy and we have over a hundred percent of them again say that they feel more comfortable and confident to be able to engage with politicians about issues that affect them and that's just not just in australia we've also found that in tonga and now we are launching a girls take over parliament in papua new guinea which has zero absolutely zero it's ridiculous zero women in politics the australian government spent millions of dollars trying to train up candidates yet when we said that we're coming over 200 women from across the country age 15 to 25 applied for our program and we're now giving them the support and we're giving them the mentorship and the connections and that's that's the difference between us and every other leadership program it's we connect them directly to politicians to give them unprecedented access And it's not just for one day, but it's a long-term relationship that we're trying to build. And we honestly believe that will make a huge difference. And every single country that we're going to be working in, it's youth-led 
from those countries. We give them the tools, they co-design it, and then they implement it. And we're seeing huge results. Again, this sometimes can be quite controversial, but is there therefore still, I guess, need of mechanisms within the political system, things like quotas, to help support that change even more? Because you said it's still a massive boys club. Mm. So even with a program like this, I can imagine women will still get stuck at the door, so to speak, because yes, they're applying mm. now, but if they're still not accepted by mainly dominated male mm. politics, what, sort of we, what do we do about that aspect of it? I'm personally all for quotas, but I also understand that quotas, yes, they can help women, but that also helps a specific type of woman. Mm. So generally, uh, they're a woman who is Caucasian, who has a university degree behind her, but what about, you know, Old women, what about young women? Where's that sort of diversity? Mm. And so that's a big problem. I personally, again, this is a very controversial sort of thing. But (laughs) (laughs) I am, I am personally think that we should get rid of quotas for women and instead put quotas for men. There are so many mediocre men in politics. It is not funny. Mm. And I feel like there is too much of them. If you put quotas for men and say, okay, this is for, for the next couple, of, for the next say twenty years, let's just try it. Let's put th- this is the amount of men that we can have in cabinet. This is the amount of men that we can have in office. This is the amount of men I- in politics completely. Put a cap on that. They've had enough. They've had over what a hundred years, mm-hmm. you know, centuries. It's always been male power. So let's just try to change it a little bit, mm-hmm. and that will then create spaces for when for more diverse women to get into the fold. But it's also about, like politics is a boys club, but it's also, I guess, a little bit of nepotism. It's Mm -hmm. the relationships that you have, you need to have strong relationships to be able to run for office. And then if you wanna get into politics, you need to be supported by the members of the party. And so relationships is key. And that is why I think, you know, Girls Take Your Parliament is really important because it's developing relationships between all parties. We're bipartisan. We work with every single party. We work with both women and men. It's giving them that mentorship and that space to develop relationships that will continue for years to come. And that's what we desperately need. We need political parties extending their hand, not going, oh, we're just going to work with Young Labour or we're just going to work with Young Libs. Mm -hmm. It's going out into the communities, trying to put the community back into politics. It's those relationships is fundamental to how we're going to try and change our, um, our political diversity, but also how we're going to change the country. So I guess we end with two questions. Given that our audience is young people, want mm. to change the world, want to create that social impact, I guess, is there anything else that you may have missed for our interview that you want to leave with a message? And then following that, are there any sort of books, media, podcasts, films, anything that you'd recommend? Mm. Yeah, so I think something I left out is start before you're ready. That is my biggest tip to any young, budding social entrepreneur, change maker is a lot of people and even yourself might think that you don't have the skills, the funding or the support networks behind you to make a big difference. But it's that desire to make a difference that that's how you know that you're ready. So. Even if you don't have any of those, start now because that will lead you to monumental things. And I think my, oh, I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time. So I'm so loving being on this one. I have two podcasts I listen to religiously. So one of them is called Call Your Girlfriend. 
It is a podcast by two best friends on either side of America who are journalists who have created this incredible podcast on politics, on self-care is a massive one for them. And I just listen to it every day. It's, it's fantastic. They have amazing people um, at interviews and they're just bloody great. And the second one is Pod Save America. I'm a massive political nut, so I listen to it every single day and I know what's happening with Donald Trump. So I suggest you guys go and listen to it too. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming to the show, Kaylee. We really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you.